0: It's number one with a Bullard, the audio edition. I'm Gabe Bullard. Episode two, good times, ragtime. For most of this summer, the song Running Up That Hill, A Deal With God by Kate Bush has been in the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100. It peaked at number three. The song is 37 years old, and its popularity is driven by its appearance in the show Stranger Things. This is unusual, but it's not unprecedented. In the spring and summer of 1974, this song, Scott Joplin's The Entertainer, was in the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100. It peaked at number three. The song was 72 years old, and its popularity was driven by its appearance in the movie The Sting. Remember that sting experience? How good you felt? Now, The Sting, winner of seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, is back. To be precise, Scott Joplin himself was not on the charts as a performer in 1974. The version of the entertainer that charted was Marvin Hamlish's recording from the movie soundtrack. It's not the version you're hearing now, either. This is synthetic. I can make it sound like anything. Here it is as a pipe organ. And here it is as an 80 synthesizer, suitable as background music for a podcast. You could dismiss Hamlet's charting with The Entertainer as something closer to The Chicks charting with a cover of Landslide, but that doesn't line up. The Entertainer predates recorded music, The only way Joplin could chart is if a long-lost wax cylinder or piano roll of him performing his song made it to wide release, or if Billboard decided to track sheet music sales. Hamlish's recording doesn't add any modern sound sensibilities or pop star power to the song the way a modern cover might. The main variation in his version is orchestration. Hamlish uses horns and a clarinet in addition to piano. It's not like he made it into an EDM track which might sound like this. Okay, 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 that's enough. But if you were into that, I'll put the whole track at the end of this episode. The Entertainer also predates modern pop music as a genre. The sonic distance between a ragtime composition and the hits of 1974 is far greater than any popular cover is from the original. I'm working on a follow-up that will look at popular cover songs and the amount of time between the original and the cover, but so far nothing comes close to 72 years. And The Entertainer reached the charts under 1974 rules, when rankings were determined by record sales and radio play. Some 2 million people bought the 45 RPM single of Hamlish's recording. Millions more heard it on pop radio stations. Today's charts are determined in part by streaming, in addition to sales. It's not easier for an artist to get on the charts now, but it is easier and cheaper for fans to help an artist get on the charts. And I don't mean to downplay the brilliance of The Entertainer by questioning why it was popular in the 70s. Joplin was a genius. Without his contributions to music, a lot of what was on the radio in 1974 might not exist. And there's nothing unusual about listening to older compositions or recordings. The Entertainer wasn't out of date. But in a pop music context dominated by acts like Stevie Wonder, Wings, Cool in the Gang, and ABBA, a straightforward ragtime piano tune seems a little out of place. In the year-end Billboard singles charts, The Entertainer is one step above Waterloo, which won that year's Eurovision Song Contest. When lawmakers were discussing impeaching Richard Nixon, DJs in America were spending ragtime on pop stations. How did this come to be? Well, for one, The Sting was huge. It opened on Christmas in 1973 and made the kind of money we only see superhero movies make now. It grossed $156 million, which is the equivalent of over a billion dollars today. It won seven Academy Awards, including best score for Hamlish. The next year, this work won Hamlish a Grammy setting him on the path to becoming one of the 17 people to win an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony, and to be one of only two people to win a Pulitzer in addition to the EGOT. Pretty much everyone who went to the movies saw The Sting, and pretty much everyone who saw The Sting wanted to hear the music from the movie at home. While The Entertainer was climbing the singles chart, the soundtrack to The Sting was the number one album in the country. Not only did people want to hear the entertainer, they wanted to hear an entire LP's worth of Hamlish's Scott Joplin recordings. The success of The Sting explains how Hamlish's recording of Joplin became so popular. But the movie can hardly be credited with making Joplin popular in the 70s. If anything, the movie score was drafting on the composer's success in that decade. Ragtime had been growing in popularity since 1969, that year, U.B. Blake, one of the original ragtime composers, born 19 years after Joplin, put out a career retrospective record. The album made the 86-year-old a star. He toured and appeared on TV for the next 14 years. He had a Broadway show. In 1970, the record label Nunsuch put out the first of three albums of Juilliard graduate Joshua Rifkin playing Joplin compositions on piano. That same year, musician and historian Vera Brodsky-Lawrence edited a two-volume set of Joplin's sheet music, which the New York Public Library published. It was the first time anyone had published the complete works of a black composer. Two years later, the Atlanta Symphony and Morehouse Glee Club staged the first-ever production of Joplin's opera, *Treemonisha*. When The Sting left theaters, the United States was five years into a ragtime obsession. The music, movie, and publishing industries were profiting from ragtime remembrances and reissues. Academics studied it. Audiences ate it up. In 1974, the New York Times made reference to the ragtime tidal wave currently deluging America. So what happened to the wave? Why isn't it as well-documented or as resonant in popular culture as the 50s revival that happened at the same time? Sha Na played Woodstock, American Graffiti was up against the sting for Best Picture, Grease, Happy Days, and Don McLean's American Pie persist in popular culture. But search the archives for articles about Ragtime from the 70s, and you'll get more results about the E.L. Doctorow novel than the music. Beyond the Times article I referenced earlier, there's very little I can find from the 70s that explains or documents the Ragtime revival, outside of mentions in academic papers. The closest thing to the 70s ragtime revival in modern memory is the swing craze of the 90s. Once again, in a time of rapid musical innovation, sounds from 70 years earlier exploded on the charts and airwaves. Compared to its precursor, the swing revival is well documented. It's one of the things only 90s kids remember, preserved on the fringes of confused nostalgia for third wave ska, underneath the career of Vince Vaughn, and algorithmically boosted whenever YouTube shows someone an old Gap ad. In all this media, I think I've found the answer to why the Ragtime revival isn't as well remembered today. It's not that it didn't lead to new and memorable media. The Sting, U.B. Blake's records, and the Joplin re-recordings are proof enough. I think the Ragtime revival faded because of the media it was based on, sheet music and academic citations. Compared to the turn of the century, the 50s and the swing era left behind heaps of cultural artifacts that were still in circulation for the revival. There were movies and records and, with the 50s, TV shows. They could be rerun and reinterpreted. You could put on a Benny Goodman album, or you could watch a Brian Setzer music video. You could buy a Buddy Holly retrospective or watch Grease. If you wanted to participate in the Ragtime revival, you had to see an active band do their interpretation, you had to buy a new record, or you had to see a new movie. The source of the media was people who could read music or had access to archives of journals of musicology. They were the narrow bridge from the original to the new. There were no reruns to riff on, and no mass memory to mimic. Sure, someone could look up an old photo and try to dress like that, But the past that lives on paper feels much less alive than an era stamped on wax, burned onto celluloid, or beamed into our homes. That past is preserved in motion. When we capture something in motion, it's never as sharp as it was at first. It's blurred and distorted. Literally, it's mediated. One hallmark of the 70s ragtime recordings is the fact that they were done at the slower tempo that would have been more common to the original. The artists use period-appropriate instrumentation. There was mass appreciation of ragtime, but not a mass understanding that was deep enough for camp interpretations to emerge. The 70s version of the 50s and the 90s version of the 20s were campy in a way the ragtime revival wasn't. Greece is a caricature of the 50s. There's an exaggeration and a selective filtering that happens with the populist revival, and the works that make it through this filter set the revival apart from the original. They give it its own stamp in history. This wasn't the case with Ragtime. It was straightforward, accurate, and destined to be short-lived. Thanks for listening to Number One with a Bullard. The show is written and produced by me, Gabe Bullard. Linda Golden edits the scripts and the text of the newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter or subscribe to the podcast, wherever it is that you found this. Just find the links there at GabeBuller.com. You know how to do it. Just please do it and maybe tell a friend. Thanks for listening. And for those of you who stuck around, here is that dubstep version of The Entertainer. Talk to you soon.